The fact that Jesus died is not frequently debated. The reason why he died is debated all the time. This morning, we want to talk about the manner of Jesus' death. Now, it's, it's debated by some. Muslims, for example, do not think that Jesus died by crucifixion. They believe that he died in a natural way, and another man died in Jesus' place on the cross. But of those that do affirm that Jesus died on the cross, it's a fair question to ask, how exactly did he die? Forensic forensic pathologists, uh, who limit the scope of their uh, analysis to the physical conditions, uh, suggest these possibilities for the manner of Jesus' death, pulmonary embolism, cardiac rupture, suspension trauma, asphyxiation, a fatal stab wound, shock. Now preachers like J.C. Philpot, 1802 to 1869, examined the biblical revelation that has been made available to us, and with regard to the manner of Jesus' death, argue that it goes beyond physical explanations. Listen to what he said. Quote, It was not the nails driven through his hands and feet. It was not the crown of thorns placed upon his brow. It was not the stripes which mangled his back which caused our Lord to die. It was not the mere bodily agony of the cross. It was not the mere pain though most acute and severe, of the nails driven through his sacred hands and feet, it was not being stretched upon the cross six hours that constituted the chief part of the Redeemer's suffering, but it was the almost intolerable load of imputed sin, the imputed sins of millions. It was the tremendous outpouring of the wrath of God God into his holy soul. It was the hiding of the Father's face. Our suffering Savior drank the cup of the wrath of God to the very dregs. When our vile, dreadful, and horrible sins were laid upon him. The prophet Isaiah revealed that the Father would crush the Son, chapter 53, and that the Son would bear the sins of many. Now, we're we're, we're starting to talk about the reason for Christ's death, and we will deal with that, Lord willing, next week and the week following. Uh, But for now, I want to, to, uh, to, to focus our attention on the manner of his death, the nature of this crushing. It's uh, most fitting during this Lenten season leading up to Easter that we linger over the text of Scripture concerning the death, burial, and resurrection of the Savior in our study through John's Gospel. The Apostle has uh, been 
been carefully preparing us, leading us to the point of Jesus' death and subsequent resurrection. Uh, this morning, in the middle of John chapter 19, we, we arrive at the actual death of our Lord. I want you to follow along with me as I read our text. I'm going to begin uh, in John chapter 19 at verse 16. So he, speaking of Pilate, then handed him, speaking of Jesus, over to them, <laughs> speaking of the soldiers, to be crucified. Verse 17. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Hebrew, Golgotha, there they crucified him and with him two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took the outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. If you're following along with me in, uh, in the outline, we've provided this morning, you'll find that there are three points. I've divided this, this section into three um, divisions. Uh, the sun on the cross. Secondly, the sign on the cross. And third, the spoils at the cross. John begins in our text, verse 17, with this simple statement, they, the soldiers, took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross. The Greek philosopher and historian Plutarch, A.D. 46 to 119, confirmed the Roman practice that criminals sentenced to death by crucifixion carried their own execution stake to their execution site. More specifically, they did not carry the whole cross. They carried the horizontal piece, the horizontal bar. It's called the patibulum, uh, that portion of the cross to which their arms were secured. Now, Jesus, uh, under the instruction of the, uh, and command of the uh, soldiers, 
left the city. He went out of the city bearing his own cross. But something happened. John doesn't record this for us. The synoptic gospel writers do. Uh, Matthew, for example, chapter 27, verse 32 says, as they were coming out, coming out of the city of Jerusalem, that is, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. Now, evidently, Jesus stumbled, fell, was unable physically to continue carrying that horizontal bar to which his arms would be attached. Uh, and so, due to him stumbling, falling, as he stepped out of the city, the Roman soldiers conscripted another man to finish that task and carry that patibulum for Jesus to Golgotha, to the execution site. Now, I doubt if this was an irregular or unusual circumstance, because typically, a man crucified was also scourged. And though the Jews had a limitation on how many times a criminal could be scourged, namely 40, uh, the Romans had no such, um, no, no such rules. Uh, they could crucify, they could uh, scourge someone for as long as they wanted. Uh, it was not uncommon that a man would die as a result of this. So I, I, I would not be surprised at all to learn that uh, this circumstance where Jesus stumbled and, and fell, maybe repeatedly, uh, was rather usual for someone who had been scourged in anticipation of their crucifixion. So he, here's this man. We, we, we learn his, that his name is, is Simon. He's from Cyrene, present-day Libya, North Africa. And he's there in Jerusalem at the time of Passover. That would lead us to surmise that he would at least be a God-fearer like Cornelius, Acts chapter 10, and then again, maybe he was a Jew in the fullest sense. Now, there's, there's, there's many things that we, we might like to know, but we don't know about this man, uh, Simon. But we do know this. We do know this about the nature and the person of God. He never does anything randomly. There, there, there is no coincidental or serendipitous kind of event that takes place. No, words like random and coincidental and chance and luck are not in God's vocabulary. He is the sovereign one. He is the one who is directing the affairs of men and women. Now, the evangelist Mark adds uh, a piece of detail here that is of interest. I'm, I'm reading from uh, Mark chapter 15, verse 21. Fifteen, verse 
21, they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, in parenthesis, the father of Alexander and Rufus, and parens, to bear his cross. Now, we don't know anything about Simon, and here Mark adds to what we don't know, uh, telling us, going out of his way to tell us that Simon is the father of Alexander and Rufus. <laughs> Why does he do that? Well, I, I, I realize that this is, this is going to be speculative in nature, uh, but I'd like to string a few beads together. I'd like to, I'd like to create a necklace, and um, let's, let's, let's try it out. Um, I, I'm, gonna, I'm going to begin by simply making a notation that of all of the gospel writers, Mark is the only one who mentions Alexander and Rufus. All right, next thing I need to bring to your attention is that Mark went by his middle name. He first shows up in the historical chronological record of the New Testament in the book of Acts, and we find there that his, his name officially is, is John Mark. He was the nephew of Barnabas, one of the early church leaders. When Barnabas and his companion, Saul, who was later named Paul, when Barnabas and Saul, Paul, went on their first missionary journey, they took John Mark with them. But not too long into their journey, John Mark abandoned them. He deserted them. It did not go well in Paul's mind. So much so that when they began their second missionary journey, Barnabas, wanting to take his nephew with them again, Paul responded saying, no way. So the two, the dynamic duo of Barnabas and Paul split up. Barnabas went his way with John Mark, presumably, and Paul went another. Well, decades pass with us having no record of John Mark or his doings until Paul wrote his last extant letter, letter that we refer to as 2 Timothy. He wrote that letter in Rome from prison, and he says to, uh, to his, his, his young protege, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. Well, the last time we knew John Mark and what he was about, um, Paul was not a happy camper with him. 
so, so obviously there is some maturing and some reconciliation that has taken place in these intervening years, decades, where now John Mark is of value to Paul. Now we presume that Timothy was able to, to, uh, to take Paul, uh, John Mark with him to Rome. So now we find John Mark with Paul in Rome. No doubt he has been introduced to people in Rome and um, uh, many scholars believe that Mark wrote his gospel from Rome okay, and let's back up just a little bit um, historically for a moment uh, when Paul wrote the book of Romans to the believers there in the city of Rome he had not previously been there Though he knew a number of the people that were in that fellowship who had lived, who, who, who now lived in Rome, Paul knew them from uh, other um, uh, missionary work in the Mediterranean world. He had, um, uh, well, he, Paul says at the end of, uh, of his, his uh, letter to the Romans, he's, he's um, giving greetings to those people that he did know. And in chapter 13, verse, chapter 16, verse 13, he says this. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Well, that's interesting. Did Paul's mother and Rufus's mother know each other? Were they friends? And who is this Rufus guy? It, 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 it's, it is possible. We, we, we are speculating here. But, but it is possible that Rufus, in Mark's Gospel, is mentioned there because he is a member of the church in Rome where John Mark wrote his Gospel that church would be uh, the first recipients, uh, the first readers of Mark's gospel record. And it would make sense for John Mark to include Rufus's name, Alexander's name, because they were leaders there, had been leaders in that church for a long time. So here, we, 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 put a, we, we put another uh, bead on our chain here, on our, on our necklace. Is it possible that because Simon was tapped out, conscripted by the Roman soldiers to carry part of the cross for Jesus, is it possible that Jesus had a conversation with Simon that fateful day, conversation maybe about sin and righteousness and judgment, a conversation maybe about Jesus being the king of all kings and Simon's responsibility to submit to that. Did they have a conversation about Jesus being the Mashiach of God? Is it possible that Simon was converted that day as he carried 
with the tibulum to Golgotha. And is it possible that from that conversion experience that Simon spoke with his boys, Alexander and Rufus, is it possible that they came to faith because their dad carried that cross for Jesus to Golgotha? It was no accident that the Romans picked out this one particular man to assist Jesus. Maybe Jesus assisted him more than anyone else that day. Well, John simply reports back in our text, um, that Jesus went out bearing his own cross and he went to the place of the skull. As he was going, we read in Luke's Gospel that Jesus had a brief conversation with a group of women. John doesn't mention this. John, John simply gets Jesus to Golgotha rather quickly. Luke gives us a little bit more of what went on en route while Jesus is on this death march. Listen as I read from Luke chapter 23. Jesus is, is engaging this group of women. Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me. But weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. It was as though Jesus was saying, Ladies, you are, are weeping for the wrong person. You're, you're weeping for me. You're, 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 you're looking at innocence and you are saying that's wrong and it's right for you to do that however they needed to be instructed that there is coming a future time a future time of coming judgment judgment for all those who refuse Jesus as the king. Judgment was going to follow, uh, fall on the whole city of Jerusalem, and fall it did. In 70 AD, the Romans completely destroyed uh, Jerusalem, and, and, and including the temple. Uh, it was a sign of future eternal judgment to come. that took place on his way to the place of the skull. John uh, tells us that, um, as he's writing in, in uh, Greek, uh, that this was called, in Hebrew, Golgotha, more accurately, Jewish Aramaic. In Greek, the word is um, krineon, 
from which we get our English word cranium. In Latin, the word Golgotha translates Calvaria, from which we get our English word Calvary. These, these words, Crineon, Golgotha, Calvaria, translate skull. Now, we, we, we don't know exactly why it was called the place of the skull. There are some that say that the hill on which Jesus died had the shape of a skull. Now, we sing the song uh, about a hill far away where there stood an old rugged cross, but the text of Scripture doesn't say anything about Jesus being crucified on a hill. He may have been, but the text doesn't tell us that. There are some that postulate that that name came from the practice of the Roman soldiers to decapitate uh, those victims who were crucified and leave their heads, their skulls, uh, there on the, uh, at the execution site. I, I, I think that is um, very unlikely because Jews would not tolerate that kind of uncleanness uh, in their land, especially so close to Jerusalem. We get to verse 18, and, and, and John is, is rather, uh, rather terse, brief, simple, uh, unembellished when he says, there they crucified him. John continues, with him two other men, one on either side, Jesus in between. There are some that suggest that a trio of terrorists, uh, front and center was uh, Barabbas, uh, they, they were scheduled to be executed on that fateful day, but uh, because of the demand of the Jews, uh, Jesus took the place of Barabbas. Now, in fulfillment of prophecy, again, Isaiah chapter 43, we see that the servant of Yahweh would be, quote-unquote, numbered with the transgressors. And here he is, surrounded by two other terrorists. There they crucified him. Those of you who that are uh, unfamiliar with the process of crucifixion, um, let me uh, let me let me uh, uh, read a, an account, uh, a description by a medical doctor named uh, Truman Davis. I'm on the second page of your notes. Um, by the way, listen as I, uh, as I read Davis's uh, description. Quote, the cross is placed on the ground and the exhausted man is quickly thrown backwards with his shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire feels for the depression at the front of the wrist. He drives a heavy square 
wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flex and movement. The cross is then lifted into place. The left foot is pressed backwards against the right foot, and with both feet extended, toes down, a nail is driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees flexed. The victim is now crucified. As he slowly sags down with more weight on the nails in his wrists, excruciating, fiery pain shoots along the fingers and up the arms to explode in the brain. The nails in the wrists are putting pressure on the median nerves. As he pushes himself upward to avoid this stretching torment, he places the full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, he feels the searing agony of the nail through the feet. Again, he feels the searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the bones of his feet. As the arms fatigue, cramps sweep through the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward to breathe. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but not exhaled. He fights to raise himself in order to get even one small breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. Spasmodically, he is able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in life-giving oxygen. Hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins. A deep, crushing pain deep in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. It's now almost over. The loss of tissue fluids. The loss of tissue fluids has reached a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air. And all of this, John compresses into this very simple, terse report. They crucified him. Point number two, the sign on the cross. It was usual for a criminal to wear a placard around his neck on his way to be crucified, it uh, stated why the criminal was going to be executed, justifying the brutality of Rome upon this particular individual. And in verse 19 of our text, 
We read this. Read this. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. Now, upon reading that, particularly focusing on the word also, Pilate also wrote an inscription, put it on the cross. It would lead you to think that Jesus had this kind of sign on a placard that he carried from Jerusalem on this death march to Golgotha. Uh, but there is nothing in the text that would lead us to believe that there was any si such sign. So what's the word also there? Pi Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. I think the, the word also is there to alert us to the fact, highlight the fact, that Pilate has just poked the eye of the Jews one more time with this statement. He, he wrote this and put it on the cross as a, a slap in the face to the religious leaders. Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Now we find out in the next verse that many of the Jews read this inscription. Jesus was crucified just outside of the city and there are throngs of people that have come to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. So, so the city is just burgeoning with people and there are people coming and going all the time. And this is what Pilate did with his sign. He wrote that statement, Jesus the Nazarene, King of the Jews, in Hebrew, that is Jewish Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. Now, Jewish Aramaic was the local language. Latin was the official royal language. Greek was the lingua franca, the business language. So anybody, well, let's, let's say maybe 99.99% of everybody that was there in and around Jerusalem would have been able to read, understand one of those three languages, Aramaic, or Latin, or Greek. They, they would have been conversant in one of those, at least. So everybody knows as Pilate had determined, that Jesus is this king of the Jews. Now, the, the religious leaders were in a conniption. They, they, were, they were not interested in um, that, that statement as Pilate wrote it, because he wrote it as if it's a fact, and they wanted it to be written as, this is, this is Jesus' opinion. This, this is what he thinks about himself. And Pilate balked, verse 22, what I have written, I have written. I find it very interesting that Pilate wrote what he wrote 
though, though he intended to, to, to jab a stick in the, in the eye of, of, of the religious leaders, he actually was declaring the truth of who Jesus was. And here we have another example of, of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility converging. More accurately, we, we call this the doctrine of concurrence. Uh, what Pilate intended to be a slam, God intended to be a declaration of truth. Yes, Jesus is the king of the Jews. Uh, we, we, we can't um, uh, miss the fact as well that in the 29 verses that John records in detailing Jesus' interaction with and around Pilate, in these 29 verses, the word king shows up a dozen times. It's though, as though... John does not want us to miss the fact that Jesus is indeed the king of all kings. Contrary to unaided human reasoning, this crucified one is the most powerful potentate in the cosmos. Point number three, the spoils at the cross. Having secured Jesus on the cross, having nailed the placard above Jesus' head on the cross, these soldiers divided up Jesus' garments among themselves. Now, this was usual practice. A criminal who was crucified like this was by definition an enemy of the state and as such they had no rights and they had no property so when an executed man um, suffered this kind of fate anything that was there um, anything he brought with them uh, even out of prison, it didn't belong to any family members, for example. It belonged to the soldiers as uh, spoils of war. Jesus had five things in his possession as he came to the cross. He had uh, a head covering. He had an outer garment that we call a cloak. He had an inner garment that we call a tunic. Um, he had uh, a belt and he had sandals. Now, four of those five things were quickly divided uh, among the soldiers. John Wright re reports it this way. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier, and also the tunic. Now, the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Um, this, is a, this is a rather minor detail that the soldiers 
uh, divided up Jesus' garments. They cast lots for the tunic because it had some, uh, some financial value to it, uh, albeit soiled as it was, um, it was, it was woven in one piece. So for that, they, they cast, cast lots. Now, that, that minor de- detail is a major deal because of where it had previously been stated. A thousand years beforehand, in Psalm 22, King David wrote of his own experience. But he, he, he wrote in such a manner, according to the, the uh, direction of the uh, Holy Spirit, uh, to describe the, the work of Messiah that was yet to come. In um, Psalm 22, we, uh, we, we read these words as, as David began. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A, um, a word from the cross that we will hear, Lord willing, in uh, two weeks and uh, look at that a little bit more fully. Let your eye go down to verse 11. David, David writes, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil doers has encompassed me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O oh Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. This morning we've, we've talked about the manner of Jesus' death. His suffering is significant. It is eternally important for us for reasons why, when we're going to talk about the, the reasons for his suffering, um, starting next week, Lord willing. Uh, but, but his suffering, as important as it is for us to understand and talk about, his suffering was temporal, essential, but temporal. We serve not a dying Savior, but a risen Savior is why on the cross behind me you will find no body. We don't, we, don't, we don't serve a suffering Savior. We serve a risen Savior. His suffering is important, and we need to understand that. 
but what he gives to us as a result of his suffering is life, not death. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the glory of this revelation, the wonder of what our Lord Jesus endured on our behalf. We are eternally in his debt. And I pray that as we consider his work on the cross, his work of resurrection, especially during this time celebrating uh, or anticipating the celebration of Easter, we pray that you would deepen our understanding, that you might receive all of the glory and we might uh, enter into the good of what Christ has done on our behalf. This we pray in his name.